So this is the third podcast on the book Principles by Ray Dalio. In this podcast and the week prior, we read the first half of the work principles, which is principles that you can apply to the workplace and the environment and culture you bring there. So firstly, the first idea I wanted to bring up was on page 306. He says that power should lie in the reasoning, not the position of the individual. The best ideas win no matter who they come from. And this was kind of his memo uh, in you know the late 90s, his, his goal for this idea of meritocracy where people or ideas are based on their merit, not who they come from. And so this is the entire, uh, you know, the point of the book. It's let's get at the truth through reasoning, uh, through ideas and building this idea of meritocracy within a culture. However, he does make the case for believability waiting, right? And the idea that because someone has been successful more often, we should give more weight to their ideas. And so just a question for you two, how do these conflict Right? In one sense, you have the power and the reason, the idea of meritocracy. But now he's starting to place power in people. So how do these two interact? I would say these ideas conflict because if you are a more believably weighted person who has had this experience, you're probably going to want people to really consider your ideas more than someone who just has an idea and hasn't really had much experience. So if you have an idea and someone who hasn't had much experience, people are considering both their opinions equally, or not equally since you are waiting, but if they get a chance to say something, it could um, make you angry as you feel it's not fair. But I think it's a really good strategy because it's important to weigh the people's decision who have more experience, but you can gain a new perspective. If you always get the same ideas from the same people who have more believably weighted decisions, you won't get the new perspectives of others who can uh, start to rank, rack up their believability. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is basically, you know, we can use people and their new ideas to listen, but ultimately the power and the decision-making should be to the believably weighted people. So it's important to gain new perspectives, but ultimately they have the power in making decisions. So what I would say to me is that the biggest thing here and this was my main takeaway from this entire section, was that believability weighting your decisions brings practicality to the idea of meritocracy. So a pure idea of meritocracy is where all the power lies in the reasoning of an idea. However, that's impractical, right? If we wanted to flesh out every single idea from you know thousands of people in an organization, it becomes very impractical, expensive, inefficient. And so this believability weighting brings a sense of practicality. Right? We should weigh and we should listen to the people who have experienced more. And so it takes a balance between the traditional organizations, which places power in authority and in being higher up in the hierarchy uh, of an organization, but it also balances the idea of meritocracy, you know, where we value other people's opinions and we have to listen to them to gain these new perspectives. So I really think believability waiting to me is about practicality. Yeah, I think you, I think you nailed it um, in that analysis of it. Um, for me, like just sort of zooming out on this whole, um, work principles idea and going back to your initial definition of, um, work principles and what this passage is meant to be. Um, I don't necessarily think that you define it as like principles that you can use in the workplace. I don't necessarily, um, see it as just the workplace. I think it's principles that you can use in your life as you interact with other people. Um, and a big part of life is, you know, uh, listening to other people, having conversations, getting um, variety in thought. Um, and I would say 
the principles we've read so far or the thoughts um, we've heard so far are based on um, other, uh, I would say the, the, the first part is um, yourself and focusing on the principles that you should hold. And then the second part is more just um, focusing on principles that you should hold when talking to other people. So maybe not even in the workplace, but when talking to other people. I would say I agree with Rowan, but I think it's more that the work principles are principles you should follow when you're with a team. When you're with people who have a shared goal, they're working towards the same mission. Yeah, and that's kind of my take on it as well. Is uh, Maybe it's a bit debate of semantics, whether we call it work or whether we call it an organization. But ultimately, these principles apply when people have the same principles. So this is another question that I had is, can you be radically transparent and radically truthful and isn't practical to do so in an environment where others are not? So for example, if I go to my high school and in English class, I express ideas that are radically truthful and radically transparent, even if I make it public that I'm being transparent and truthful, is it productive? And so my take on this is no. I think there are repercussions when it comes to radical transparency when not everyone is on board and fully conscious of the context you're in. And so I think these work principles are specified to where people share principles. So that's kind of my reasoning for calling it work principles. And, and that's where it splits up the idea of life principles from work principles. Life principles is where, you know, you aren't, re- aren't interacting with others with shared principles and work principles is uh, for that scenario. I think that point needs justification. Why do you think that it's uh, potentially harmful to be radically transparent when others aren't? Well, I'll give you an example. Or, or rather, I think I can explain it through reason. So the big case for radical transparency is that we pull the emotion out of your state. Right, the two use the higher level you, which is rational, and the lower level you, which is emotional. So, in a shared organization where people... I, I disagree with that definition. I, I, think, I think you can it, still be, um, even if you're being radically transparent, you can still have your emotional bias. Like you could say to someone, "Oh, I, you're making me feel this way," and I feel like they're two separate things about being radically transparent and looking at yourself, being radically transparent with yourself, and being radically transparent with others. Just uh, this is how this is the, for me the importance of radical transparency comes down to solving problems, right? I, or if it's not strictly solving problems, solving problems is one of the biggest examples and the biggest needs for it. Um, radical transparency is extremely important when you're trying to identify a problem by being transparent about what a problem, what the problem is, um, and what exactly it is. Just think of it as like if you can't um, be open and clear about what a problem is, and you're distorting it in some way by not being transparent. Right? How are you ever going to figure out what you need to solve? I think it's much less about um, you know uh, monitoring your emotional, um, the emotional part of your brain and the rational part of your brain, and much more about being uh, very clear um, and not uh, delusional about what you're trying to solve and about your life in general. So I don't think I really got to finish that statement. What I was going to say is that in an environment where principles are not shared and when people let the emotions get the best of them, for example, in a high school when you're debating something in English class, for example, people take that conflict and that criticism and that transparency as you know, conflict, as pure conflict, as someone is attacking me. And if you set up an organization and present your ideas transparently, where people don't understand it's coming from the you know, goal of, of excellence rather than attacking someone, then it leads to a very unproductive environment. And in the first part of the book, he mentions that, and this is a perfect example, he says that people in his organization sent him a memo saying that you were creating a hostile environment. And that was purely because they did not share principles. 
And he says, what I took away from that was that I realized that we had to be on the same page with the same mission and with the same principles. And so that's where, you know, it was able to be more realistic and where the radical transparency became more effective. I agree with Ariz because just like the author said, you need to pick and choose the principles and what you want to apply. And I think you need to know that when you're in a situation, you're at a company that doesn't have these principles, even though in Bridgewater, like lower level people would, or people would like criticize the CEO, Ray Dalio, his performance. If you do that at a different company, the CEO will fire you if he doesn't believe in this philosophy. So I think you have to pick and choose the certain times to adhere to certain principles. I, 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 t I tend to still disagree because um, I, I don't think it's, I do agree that um, oftentimes when you're talking with people who don't have the same shared principles, um, that this can lead to harmful effects. Um, but I wouldn't say ra radical transparency is, is the, um, the root principle that everyone has to be on board with. I think you can be very transparent and very clear about what your thoughts are and be very truthful um, while still saying things in a nice way. Now, that isn't the most efficient way to th say things most of the time. So I think when it comes down to, um, yeah, like, should we always go for efficiency in this sort of like tough love environment? No, I think there are definitely times when tough love doesn't work and this like uh, this uh, system that optimizes for efficiency doesn't work. But I think there's always an opportunity to be radically transparent. There's always a nice way to say things. It's just not efficient. Okay, so you're saying that the ideas should be transparent, but the way that you express them should not in any scenario. Is that what you're saying? I, I'm just, I, I, he makes a big case in here for like, um, you know, this this idea of like tough love, right? Because it's a very um, efficient way of getting getting your point across since you know that you're not like insulting people personally um, and, and things like that. I think in the, um, in, in the classroom, whether it's an English class, whether it's in other parts of your life, um, disagreeing with people and being very truthful about what your thoughts are is something that can always be done if it's done in a manner that doesn't offend people, if it's done by recognizing and restating the respect that you have for them and that you're just trying to foster a communication. But I would say for him, you know, and I've seen this in other parts of my life, sometimes people are very direct in very like, um, they, they say things and their actions are that, that could be misinterpreted as being too critical. Right, but it's all in the interest of efficiency um, and adhering to the same belief. So I, I totally agree that sometimes you can overstep that bounds of too much efficiency. But um, I, I think there's always a way to say things in a nice way. Okay, so and be radically transparent. Yeah, I think it was important for me to clarify that when I was talking about that kind of transparency, I, I was talking about the type that you see on page 359. So this is a, a an article from someone in his organization to the CEO and founder of the. Uh, of the organization. He goes, Ray, you deserve a D minus for your performance today in the ABC meeting. And everyone saw uh, in that room agrees on that harsh assessment. And he goes on for another 10 sentences saying how poor of a job he did. When you bring that up in a place where people aren't on the same page about being radically transparent, people will take that very, very harshly. It'll lead to an extremely unproductive environment. But, but this is the very efficient version of bringing that up. That's my point. This is the very like you deserve a D minus. There's no like um, you know, there's no like rosiness before because that, that. Like because that's not radical him. transparency. Then that's no, 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 no. That's not true. That, that, this that, is efficiency. That's sugarcoating your ideas. For efficiency. That's not being radical. Sugarcoating your right. No, I, I disagree here. I just there's hundred percent because it's one. It's it's not sugarcoating your ideas to uh, restate truth truths that are true even through your criticism, right? To restate the. Uh, 
for in in dot Ray's um, position, this would be restating all of his strengths and restating that the only reason that they're giving him this assessment is because they have his best interests at heart. Um, that would be sugarcoating, right? And that's not not true. That's just um, that's just you know making that's not just not as efficient. Well, no, I but, think you mislabel the extremity of the observation. If you sugarcoat a statement that is partially true, it's partially true. It's not fully and radically truthful. So that's kind of what I'm getting at is that when you become inefficient with the way you express your direct ideas, if you want to call it that, you actually lose out on the truth and the, the, the truthfulness of that idea. I think I have to agree with ours because the whole idea why this radical transparency is unique and unusual to us is because it's so direct. And the idea of giving criticism is not new. And fluffing up criticism that's kind of just how we operate already like when you want to give someone constructive criticism you'll say something nice but you'll also mention something they need to improve on so i think that's not radical transparency it may be like on the spectrum but i don't think it's radical okay so i think there's are still some you know more to flesh out there but i kind of want to move on to the next idea um and this is another question that i want to pose i kind of like asking these questions is so in the book there is a concept of optimizing for the whole, which is the organization in this case, um, in which let's say you fire someone, it may not be good for them, but it may improve the quality of the workplace of the environment. And then there's optimizing for the individual, let's say that's yourself, right? And so lying to others and not being transparent and not abiding to principles, that's not gonna be good for yourself either and for the whole, or that that'll be better for yourself, but not for the whole. So do you guys think that this overlaps? And but by that, I mean, when someone is optimizing for the whole, are they also optimizing for the individual? I think it's very dependent on what what, what the best in, what's in the best interest of the individual. If the in, individual truly has the best interests of the um, whole um, in mind, then yes, you're optimizing for the best interests of the individual. I'd say that this connects to a very um, key point that is sort of like the overarching point um, in in this whole workplace principles that I was. Um, hitting on a little bit earlier, I think, um, which is this idea of, um, and he obviously hits, it's implicit and explicit. Um, Dalio talks about it, yeah, implicitly and explicitly throughout the thing about the power of working together in a team. Um, and for me, this was something that's really powerful and something I, I sort of learned earlier, or I've sort of come to discover um, in recent times is I used to be under this impression that, um, and very wrongly so, that uh, that, you know, doing things individual and individual achievement was, um, really the best indicator of, you know, my success. And, um, it was this very, like, I need to do things on my own, um, because that that's proof that I can do things on my own. Um, but I think this idea of doing things on a team and the power that you have, um, through working on a team and being successful on a team, um, says something much more about you as a person than achieving something on an individual scale. And maybe they're two different scales, um, but I think they're equally important, right? Um, for me, uh, one of the qu quotes that I've, I love a lot is, um, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the specifics, but it's like uh, the 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 value of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts on like a great working team. Um, and for me, that just, it shows like the power to commit yourself to something that's much greater than yourself. And then through that, elevate your potential, elevate your ability. Um, so it, it, it's, just, it's just such a powerful point. I think humans, and he makes this point throughout the book, um, we're wired to work with other people. It's 
100% um, important for us to be working with other people and the power of us working with other people is exponential. We gain um, access to exponential um, potential. I agree with what Rowan's saying. And I think that, of course, you would think that there would be overlap, that if you work for the good of the company, the company will flourish and you being a part of that will flourish. But I think sometimes doing something for the good of the company rather than yourself is not the most direct way to help yourself or it's not the most clear way to help yourself. And that's why I think it's not uh, people's clear motives are not always to do something for the good of the company because they can do something for themselves much easier. They can kind of see the journey of helping themselves much easier, whether doing something for the good of the company could, um, it's kind of hit or miss or it may not directly impact you. Yeah. And I think one specific example that you're talking about, and which I saw in the book, uh, towards the end of the part you read is, um, you know, someone, they confronted someone who wasn't doing a great job in their position. And they said, look, do you think you should step down? And optimizing for the whole, you know, you would probably say, yeah, I should step down and take that compensation that, you know, is a lot, maybe half of what I'm getting right now. And what he does ultimately, you know, the person in question is he steps down. But if he was optimizing for himself, he would really have taken and stayed in the position. But then here, obviously, you get into, okay, well, let's, let's look at the future of the organization if you're leading an organization. Indirect optimization. Exactly. And so the first order consequence is that, okay, look, you know, you're going to lose this compensation. But the second and third is that you're going to, you know, this organization is going to sustain for a long time. You might be able to get back at that position. But yeah, I, I think what Rowan said in his first response, which is that it depends, I would heavily agree with that. I think it's case by case. Um, and yeah. One, one of the points he makes um, in this work principles that I, uh, that I really like, that I was really struggling with um, in my life, is this idea of like when, especially when it comes to managing other people um, and working with other people, um, and especially when you're in a position of management or in a position of leadership, um, the the constant battle between being a visionary um, and being open-minded, right? And obviously, you know, you can play with the definitions on being visionary and being open-minded, um, but it's it's this sort of like battle of like. Um, you know, sometimes people are very set in stone in their ideas and um, their their theories and their visions for the world. And uh, they don't in part of being a leader for them um, is being being stubborn. Right. And, uh, you know, being sticking to what they believe in. But also the, a great quality of a leader is to be able to listen to other people and to be able to get the input from other people, because that's really how you grow, you know, um, at really, really fast rates. So um, for me, this this distinction that he makes between being assertive and open-minded and making it really like, it's really a simple answer, being making it a two-step process where you listen and you take in all the information from people um, and you really, you know, make it clear that you are listening and that you are open, but then uh, making a decision and being very clear on that decision um, is a distinction that I think just provides a lot of clarity to this um, relationship between um, being open-minded and being assertive and a good leader yeah and so when it comes to that conflict where okay am i going to listen to this person and and kind of hear what they have to say or am i going to you know keep with this belief that is so deep rooted to me that's driven all of my failures and all of my successes you do have a problem there but i think you know his believability weighted decision making process in which you know you say okay look at this person how have they been doing is there are they credible and then kind of using that and that's only one part obviously it's uh as we said earlier it's listening to everyone uh, and then maybe not waiting everyone at all, but at least listening is important. 
Well, to add on a little bit to what we're saying kind of further is that how people are like kind of attached to their own um, decision-making skills and their ideas. What I really liked is that once you come up with a decision, everyone's on board and you leave behind what you had to say. Once you make a decision, you go forward with the decision being made. And I think that's a really effective way to move forward once you've made a decision. Yeah, I would agree. I think despite the differences that you come up with when making the decision, uh, you have to be able to move past that without any grudges because you know it's going to be better for the whole, even though, you know, if you have some ego problems with that. I think going back to believability waiting, he brings up this idea an absurd amount of times in the book and really, really redefines it so many times, or not redefine it, but restates it. And so I found that part of the book to be very repetitive. Uh, I would like to hear your input here, but I think the hierarchical nature of the book in which you have these points and subpoints, each subpoint in a way repeats the bigger, uh, the bigger picture and, and the, the, the main point. And so because of that, you know, this nature and the hierarch- hierarchical nature of the book is very prone to repetition, but I did find it to be very overdone. He, you know, he went over the same example about believably waiting so many times. I think he acknowledges it as well, though, um, and he talks about how this isn't necessarily the book that is read from cover to cover, and it's more um, a book that is used as like a reference um, for when you come back to it, um, or for when you encounter those same um, instances in your life, because he's a big believer in there are certain types of circumstances um, that reoccur. So I, I think he acknowledges it, but with that being said, um, in the style that we're reading it through, um, I do find myself... Uh, you know, radical transparency, radical truth, those seem to be like really common themes that sort of come up again and again and again. Um, and I think it it's sort of an inefficient delivery, if that's sort of uh, ironic, but it's an inefficient delivery, I think, of these points um, since they all come up over and over again. I agree with both of you. And I think that it is repeated a lot. But what I noticed is that after finishing a book, maybe months later you kind of think about when you look at that book or think about the title one or two main things when it's kind of these development books where you can learn from and i think by repeating it so much you're going to get radical transparency maybe believability weighted decisions so i think for a lot of books like this they repeat certain ideas a lot so you can really get that takeaway months later not just when we're reading it now but when we can think back to the title that's 100% right. Like, I think that's why uh, these like summaries of books don't necessarily work. It's not because they don't cover all the information in the book. It's just because like part of us needs to just like constantly beat our head against it for like hours and hours um, to really take it in. So I think it's less of like an ideas thing writing like a through 200 page book, and it's more of like a uh, like this is the only way you're actually going to learn it. Yeah, spending 10, 15 hours on a book and over these main you know, two, three ideas versus spending two minutes, um, it's very, very different. So that's kind of the point we're getting at. I will say another point to bring up is on 379. He says, having everyone randomly probe everyone else is an unproductive waste of time. I have found this extremely valuable uh, to kind of express my frustrations with some of the councils I've been on, but also in general discussions, whether that be in school or outside in another organization. It's a lot of the times I I feel as though people are just putting their ideas out there with no agenda in mind, with no point in mind. And, 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 you know, taking debate as an example, they talk about making the assertion, but then also what's the significance? What's the result? And I think that's often uh, lacked. 
And because there's no significance or result, nobody can really respond. You're not moving forward. So I think it's really important to make sure that you are directed. And, and not to confuse being directed with being narrow because I think you still can't have access to a large amount of ideas. It's just important to keep it in context instead of everyone's like, oh, this is what I think. This is what I think. And then you just have like a cluster of ideas with no real objective. Yeah, the, and the common thing to happen here is you, uh, and I've seen this happen tons of times. Dalio said he's seen it happen tons of times. I'm sure all of us have seen it happen tons of times where there's this conversation and everyone's in agreement on the big ideas. And then you get to the little intricacies of the ideas and people are in disagreement and they lose sight of the fact that they're in agreement on the big ideas and their, their, their disagreement um, lies in something that's very, very um, small and insignificant. Um, so I think it's a hundred percent. This is sort of like tying purpose, which I think is um, whether you call it purpose or principles into every aspect of your life, right? Um, you you have to have purpose in your discussion. Um, you have to have purpose in your life that might come through your principles. Um, but uh, that provides clarity, right? You need to be able to have clarity in your life. You need to be able to have clarity in your discussions. And I think um, you know. Principles are something that you can apply. You can apply them to your life. You can apply them to your discussions, and you can apply them really to any interaction um, going down, going down into the you know very intricate and specific interactions, and also into the very um, to the much larger interactions. And they help create clarity. Yeah, I mean, you talked briefly about writing down the conversation, kind of the flow of it, and the main purpose of it on like a whiteboard. And I thought that was a good idea to think about. Yeah, important to track kind of this the, the logic that you're following when coming to a conclusion. Um, I think the last main idea I had is kind of, so he it was kind of refreshing. For someone who's all about optimizing for the organization and being efficient, he really, really finds relationships and meaningful relationships to be very important. A lot of times you read these people who are all about work and, and no work-life balance, and he's like, look, work and life are one to me. And so I think that was, and his his emphasis on finding meaningful relationships through an idea of meritocracy where you can have thoughtful disagreement, that was refreshing. I, I did find that having that investment in the organization where you kind of have a sense of accountability uh, to these people uh, that, you know, that you really respect and you value leads to people optimizing for the whole on a higher percentage. So basically... If you have a bunch of people in organizations that you respect and you have these relationships, uh, you're more drawn to do better for the whole. And I think that's pretty obvious, but it's it's an insight that was nice to kind of find clarity in my mind. Yeah, I think it's when you join, they've made it so clear and he's made such an important point about hiring the right people. So when he hires them, he can already think of them like family members. So when you join, the principles are all cleared out. You kind of know what family you're joining. You're not in for a surprise and you're willing to cooperate with those principles. One of the last points that I really loved um, that he made um, in work principles was, um, well, not that I really loved, but that really um, connected with me was this idea of uh, beware of impractical idealists. And for me, this is one that hits sort of like close to home um, because uh, my, my I, I wrote a bio um, for myself one time on a website just the descriptive bio. Um, and my description was, I'm an unrealistic, I'm unrealistically optimistic. So uh, I've always prided myself. And I think being real, I think being realistic is um, something that actually, and this is obviously a hot take. I know you guys are going to disagree with this. Um, 
But uh, I think being realistic is actually something that's very inhibiting um, to some people's thoughts. And when it comes to creativity and imagining the future, um, I, I think it's Im very important to, uh, it's sort of like a first principles approach. You know, I think it's very important to uh, re 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 really see your only limitations as laws of physics. Um, I know that's something that Elon Musk talks a lot about um, when it comes to like solving problems and everything. Don't be inhibited by the uh, by the norms and the uh, realities of today to dictate the realities of the future. That makes zero sense. There are certain laws in the universe that are the only laws that you have to abide by. So for me, I think it's very important when he makes us beware of the impractical idealist. Yes, to a certain extent, but you also have to really be very clear on what um, impra being impractical means. And I think he does it, but I think it, it also deserves some clarification. Um, because uh, being, being an impractical idealist can sometimes be interpreted as a person who's just a visionary and who has this grand vision. Um, being in, uh, but I think the very, very important part is you have to understand like the how. How are you going to get there? Yeah, and, and that's the difference between being an impractical idealist and a practical idealist. But I, I think also looking at people like Elon Musk is, to me, sometimes people placing weight on that is a little bit scary just because uh, look at the outcomes. People like Elon Musk, maybe Elon Musk is a bad example because he's repeatedly been successful, but looking at these big visionaries, either they make it to the top and they end up you know, owning these amazing, impactful organizations with billions in the bank, or they, a lot of the times, end up failing, and we don't get to see the failures, and that's why we can't really associate it with, with those successes. Like These are massive risks these people are taking, you know, betting against everyone else, saying that they're, something is true when it's not or when other people don't think it is, uh, it's really a risk. And But, but I think, Rowan, you bring up uh, arguably the biggest point of this book, and I think we should probably leave it here, uh, is being self-aware and knowing who you are and looking at yourself objectively and making sure that you aren't falling to any biases of who you want to be. So self-awareness is so important when it comes to any of these topics. You got to be real with yourself. It's important to be real, not to be realistic. All right, and I think we're going to close it off there.